know, not everyone wants to stop using drugs right now or maybe ever. Not everyone wants to be in recovery, but everyone wants to be safe. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Welcome to Narcotica, everyone. I'm Troy Farah, here with Christopher Marath and Zachary Siegel. Today, we're going to be talking about supervised injection, or supervised consumption, with Laura Thomas of the Drug Policy Alliance in San Francisco. Laura, in, in the past couple weeks, there seems to have sort of been almost like an inflection point in the supervised consumption services debate. So there was this meta-analysis that came out, and there was a lot of controversy around that. It basically found that there were, you know, quote, minimal effects when it came to reducing overdose deaths at the population level. And then shortly after that, Rod Rosenstein, Deputy Attorney General at the Justice Department, he came out with an op-ed in the Times. The headline is, Fight Drug Abuse, Don't Subsidize It. We all know what you know what he's saying there and so i think given those two events on top of the exciting news happening in san francisco or well california especially you know there's a bill waiting to be signed by governor jerry brown i think we wanted to take this time to sort of take a 30,000 foot view of, of this issue right now and so we're really excited to have you on and I think more than anybody, you know the political climate, you know the science, you know the policy. So I guess, you know, where do you think we, we should start? I hardly even know where to start. I mean, I've been working on this issue since 2007. And uh, my work on supervised injection predates my employment with the Drug Policy Alliance. So this is something I've been working on since, since before then. And in 2007, uh, a coalition called, we called ourselves the Alliance for Saving Lives, we came up with this idea to do a day-long community forum here in San Francisco. We got the Department of Public Health to co-sponsor it with us. We brought a couple of people down from Vancouver, and we had a whole day-long community forum talking about overdose deaths, about HIV, about uh, public safety. We had, you know, Sarah Evans, who was then running Insight, and Thomas Kerr, one of the leading researchers on it, talk about what was happening in Canada. And it got some good media, and we were all very happy about it, except that that media quickly turned on us, and the story got picked up by the right-wing talk radio circuit, and they started amping up their viewers to complain that, you know, San Francisco was opening crack dens and San Francisco was going to be handing out illegal drugs to people and all of this stuff. And the health departments, you know, voicemails filled up with angry people calling from Indiana upset about this. And it got so bad that Senator Jim DeMint, uh, then the senator from South Carolina, um, introduced or threatened to introduce an amendment that would eliminate all federal funding for San Francisco if San Francisco moved forward with this. So 
that, you know, he never really had a chance of making that happen, but it definitely got everyone's attention, including, you know, our member of Congress, Nancy Pelosi, had to get involved. And uh, it made everyone extremely gun shy around here and unwilling to even mention the word supervised injection. I literally had health department staffers tell us that they were forbidden from discussing this, even if members of the public brought it up at community forums. So that, at least for me, and at least in the U.S., is kind of where all of this started, both with an engaged community and health department, an absurd and ill-informed response from right-wing and right-wing media, um, and it's taken us a long time to come back from that. So taking a few steps back, you know, as, as though we're, we're like fifth graders, what is a supervised injection facility? What is, a, or a supervised consumption space that it's now being called? What is this thing that people need? And can you sort of describe like what the need really is? So a supervised consumption facility, and they, they go under so many different names, overdose prevention, sites, community health engagement locations, um, and we can talk about what the different names mean, but they all basically mean the same thing, which is a location where someone comes in with the drugs that they're going to use and have a safe, clean place where they can use those drugs without fear of, of being arrested, don't have to rush their shot, and if they overdose or if they suffer any other uh, unexpected side effects, there'll be someone there, a trained person on staff, who's able to intervene, reversing a, an overdose uh, in particular, but who can also provide other assistance, uh, whether it's referral to wound care or advice about injection technique. Um, and then the other thing that all of the sites have in common is they have something that's uh, sort of a recovery room or a chill out room where people will go after they've used their drugs and that's where there's a, a real opportunity to engage with people. So they're often staffed with peers, social workers, um, just an opportunity to check in with people, see if there's something else going on with them, if there are other resources that they can be connected to. So overall, it is taking what individuals are going to be doing anyway, um, but instead of injecting on a sidewalk or in a public bathroom, uh, for example, they're, they're going to do that in a safe, clean, sterile environment. And uh, it's a place where people are welcomed, where they're given the kind of dignity and respect that they often don't get on the streets and are connected, uh, if they want, with other services. Um, this is Christopher Moraff from Philadelphia. So I, I'd like to um, jump in real quickly around um, sort of the, the evolving nomenclature on how we discuss this. So here we've adopted the term comprehensive user engagement sites. Um, some advocates have decided they're going to use overdose prevention sites. Um, but this seems to um, reflect two different ideologies around the way supervised injection facilities should work. And you've, you've got one side that sort of is 
we give people a safe place to use, we prevent overdoses, um, we save lives, period, or, or we provide medical care, right? Then there's the other side that kind of sees this as ultimately a pathway. The only way to sell this is if like we can spin it into a pathway to eventual treatment, right? So when I talk to users on the street about, you know, what, would, you know, what do you think of a supervised injection facility? Would you use one? You know, the kinds of things that people ask are, well, it really depends on what kind of hurdles are put in front of me. You know, I, I, I'm not going to give my name. Um, you know, I'm not going to go to group three days a week. Uh, there, there are women that, that need some privacy because they have to inject in areas that would, would require them to expose themselves. I guess there's sort of an amalgam of different ideas of what, of what this would look like. And what, I suppose a good question for you would be, you know, what, what would your ideal uh, facility look like? And, and to me, I even add housing to that, you know, like, I mean, there's so many different aspects of the problems that plague this, this community. What, what, what is your ideal um, uh, uh, supervised consumption site look like? In my ideal site is one that has the lowest possible barriers to entry. We want people to come in and feel comfortable and feel respected. You know, not everyone wants to stop using drugs right now or maybe ever. Not everyone wants to be in recovery, but everyone wants to be safe and have a place where they can do their drugs in a in a clean, safe environment. And so that's what it needs to be at a bottom line is a place where people feel welcome, where they feel respected and are able to meet their needs as they define them. Um, I, you know, one of the things that I really appreciate about Insight in Canada and the research that's been done there is they are able to show that a significant number of people go on to treatment um, and a significant number of people who go to Insight uh, stop using drugs altogether. It's one of the, you know, one of the um, statistics that I cite all the time that people who use Insight are more likely to go to detox and more likely to stop using drugs than people who don't go to Insight. But, you know, that is possible in part because people are not being pushed or pressured to go into treatment. There's no requirement to do groups. There's no you know, limit on the length of time you can be there. One of the things we know is the the easier that we make it for people who use drugs to go into treatment, the more likely they are. If we make it really difficult and complicated with lots of barriers um, or lots of assumptions or anything punitive, that those are all things that make it harder for people to go to treatment or get on methadone, for example, or buprenorphine. So you want, you know, if people use supervised consumption services as a way to get to other services and achieve other health goals that they've set for themselves, that is fantastic. And that is, you know, that's a large part of why I do this work. But there absolutely cannot ever be any requirement that people go to treatment, that they go to groups, that, you know, we, we can't, if we put that expectation on the individuals who are using the services or the services, we will have failed from the very beginning. One of the biggest arguments against supervised injection is that it's enabling drug use. 
But one of the things that I've seen from researching this and reporting on it for a couple of years is that it's really about restoring human dignity. It's giving people back their humanity and being like, yeah, you may be injecting yourself with these drugs, but you're a human being and we're going to treat you with respect and we're going to try to make it as safe as possible. This idea of supervised consumption is so controversial, but we've had syringe exchanges, we've had syringe exchanges in the United States, uh, syringe access programs for, for decades. And it really just seems like it's the next logical step. Instead of, you, you, we, we have so much data that shows giving people clean syringes reduces overdoses, reduces harm to their arms, reduces the transmission of bloodborne diseases. This is just the next logical step by saying, hey, it's, we're giving you some needles, go use them. We'll, we'll make sure you use them correctly and don't harm yourself. Yeah, it's like a syringe exchange inside. <laughs> like, it's not that complicated. <laughs> Exactly. It's just adding a, you know, adding another room to a syringe access program. You know, when people, I mean, I've, I'm a longtime volunteer here in San Francisco with the syringe access services here. And, you know, you give people syringes and then you tell them to go inject somewhere else. And if people are homeless or any other reason why they can't, why they don't have a safe indoor place to inject, they're going to be injecting on the sidewalk and it's, you know, syringe access is only, is only part of what people need. They also need that location. And if they don't, if they don't have a safe location, they'll do it outdoors in somewhere that's less safe. Uh, on that, on that note, I'd like to point out that, you know, in many ways, um, Philadelphia has had its, its own sort of crowdsourced, supervised consumption site for years um you know and and first it was you know a, a camp um in west kensington called el campamento uh, which was you know where which was stocked with clean needles throughout reach um it was uh you know once narcan became available it was there was abundance of narcan there when that population got sort of pushed to these bridge encampments um, it was a, you know, there were more user, user to user reversals, I believe, than, than EMT or police reversals. Um, at most of the reversals I've witnessed uh, always were user to user at, with EMTs and police showing up later. Um, this is not ideal, obviously, but um, is, there a, is there sort of, um, is there any talk about a middle ground of where we, we sort of like, we sort of train users to be their own roving um, supervised safe injection facilities in a way um, because you no, know, obviously every city is different. Um, at least where I am, that that's the perception I, I've, I've taken away from the clustering that's been, been going on uh, of users, but you're, you know, you're always going to have people that use alone and, and that's, probably due to socioeconomics. If you have a home, you're maybe going to go to it. If you have a car, you're probably going to sit in it. I guess I'd start by asking you that, um, you know, in, in lieu of, of perfection, uh, what should people that care about this be doing? Yeah, you know, drug users have always saved each other's lives. You know, every effective harm reduction intervention that we have in this country was created by and for drug users. And then eventually it gets, you know, bureaucratized and sort of sterilized and uh, expanded to the mainstream. But, you know, syringe access 
started with people who use drugs, uh, peer distributed naloxone, certainly started with people who use drugs, started with, you know, with Dan Big. And the same is true, of course, of supervised consumption services. There have always been places where people got together to, you know, share information, to share drugs, to keep an eye out for each other, to make sure that someone had Narcan on hand. So in a lot of ways, this is just expanding on what drug users have always done to take care of each other. Um, and, you know, as you probably know, there is an unauthorized underground uh, supervised consumption program somewhere in the U.S. that is run by drug users. Um, and, you know, I, I do think that having people roving around with Narcan and syringes and being able to sit there and, um, you know, be, be a witness, be a support, be ready to intervene if necessary is a great idea. Uh, and I think a lot of people already do that. Um, you know, one of the sort of underlying pieces around this, certainly here in San Francisco, I imagine it's probably similar in Philadelphia, is that all of this is happening on the back of a um, ridiculous housing crisis where affordable housing is so hard and the homelessness is uh, going up and homeless people are becoming more visible. Um, but it is also true that people who are living alone may be in some ways at more risk for overdose. So you've got to kind of fix a lot of different parts of this. I, I think like one of the points you made that is constantly left out of the debates is like, okay, first, there already are like semi-supervised consumption sites in operation all over the US. There's, a, there's definitely a couple that, that are being ran by people who just are doing the right thing. They don't have permission. They have, again, these are unsanctioned, like, but people are still doing it. And then the flip side to that is there are already unsanctioned supervised injection sites all over too, like in San Francisco, in Philly, I'm on, I'm in Chicago and the West side is one gigantic super unsanctioned site. And so we're talking about people doing what they're going to do. And then we're also talking about people who without permission are doing what they feel like just needs to be done. And that's sort of where this debate or maybe that's where things have sort of stalled for a while. Like that's where things are now. And you know, like, I just want to read this paragraph from Rob Rosenstein's op-ed in the Times, which so perfectly summarizes where we're at. His, like, his logic is so bizarre. It, he starts, quote, proponents of injection sites say they make drug use safer, but they actually create serious public safety risks. Many people addicted to opioids use illicit fentanyl or one of its analogs which can be up to 5,000 times more powerful than heroin. Chris, is that right? 5,000? <laughs> Users often have no idea what they are actually buying from criminal drug dealers. Moreover, a bystander or emergency medical worker who comes into contact with such drugs can be gravely harmed. This entire paragraph is batshit crazy. Because there's fentanyl out there, people are already injecting it all over the place in unsupervised ways. I know, and it's, you have to bring it indoors. You have to follow them. Right. We have to get them inside. 
he just made the point for the opposition. Well, and I, I really want to hear um, Zach in particular go on a rant about fentanyl and bystanders. But, <laughs> um, and if he doesn't, I will. Um, but, you know, it, it is so patently absurd and offensive to, you know, the reason we have fentanyl is because of drug prohibition. The reason people are buying illicit drugs that they don't know what's in them is because of prohibition. Like, prohibition is the single largest harm here. We're trying to mitigate some of the harms of prohibition and to have someone from the Department of Justice, like the biggest upholder of the war on drugs in this country, you know, turning around and somehow trying to blame the victim of their policies uh, for taking these actions just makes, you know, steam come out of my ears. Exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that's so true. I mean, in, in Philly now, we've, um, we've had a, a few outbreaks of, of synthetic cannabinoids winding up in bags of dope. That's troubling to me for a number of reasons, but uh, I, I don't believe it's intentional. Uh, I'm, we're still in the early stage of figuring out why that's happening. But I do try to emphasize that, that, that everything that we use, whether it be test strips, supervised consumption sites, um, needle exchange is all just really workarounds, or as um, a friend of mine has has called it, you can look at it a different way as a beachhead uh, towards getting the real impediment to safety, and and that is and that is prohibition itself. You know, Laura, I would like to, if you would, just give us a quick rundown of uh, the to, to the extent you you can the status of um, of the city's that that are that most prominently have come out in uh in support of this i mean seattle i think was the first and then i could discuss philly a little we did it a little uniquely here and i've had conflicting feelings about that um that that have evolved but why don't you just run down the the, the primary cities that that are that are potentially going to be the site of, of of whatever federal intervention the doj has in, in its mind there are Five cities where city government has said they want to do this, and that is uh, Seattle, San Francisco, um, Ithaca, New York, New York City, and Philadelphia. The other cities where there is uh, some amount of local organizing, meetings, work, um, includes Portland, Oregon, Denver, Colorado, Baltimore, Boston, Definitely uh, Washington, D.C. has been having some conversations. L.A. is interested. The L.A. City Council actually um, endorsed the statewide bill and said that they're interested in starting something. I should probably put them on the first list. So those are the main cities. I know that there are a number of states, Vermont and Maryland, as well as Massachusetts, Colorado, California, Missouri, had some legislation uh, that hasn't gone anywhere. Um, there are a number of uh, cities in Maine that are interested, as well as in Vermont, um, Western Mass, as well as Boston. Those are the main ones. Chicago's been having some conversations about this. It's you know essentially any urban area where there's a sufficient concentration of sort of public drug use and or a significant number of overdose deaths are starting to look at this. Um, I'd like to just clarify one point. Um, Philadelphia has actually um, made it very clear that they're taking a, a hands-off approach to this, um, at least at this point. Pub the pub publicly, 
and and this was a this is where a sort of a personal conflict came in with me is publicly they basically said we will not run we will not manage we will not fund or to use Rosenstein's term subsidize um, a supervised injection facility however um, if anyone should do such a thing you know we we support this idea and we will not do anything to interfere with it. I was at that press conference and I asked the uh, managing director, you know, so what happens if a group of you know, medical students decide to do this tomorrow? And he said, well, we'd like to talk to them. Um, at first, I saw that as sort of a, a, a half measure. It was kind of like leaving, you know, all these people out there uh, without any official support um, to, you know, pretend, you know, to potentially find this money, um, you know, put together a facility, take all the risks, find their own defense should something go wrong. Um, but as time has gone on, I've seen it as more of an opportunity in a way um, that uh, that the city itself has sort of like left it into private foundation hands. But even they aren't entirely clear on how that's going to work because with every step that gets taken towards a discussion or a dialogue around this, um, city officials seem to adjust their position, you know, into now, like they'd like to now see what a, what a, what a uh, protocol might look like, et cetera. Um, however, um, they, as, as of the official record, Philadelphia will not use any public money to uh, subsidize the, uh, supervised consumption. Seattle has already appropriated city money to spend on it. In San Francisco, uh, I know we're looking at private funding for it to avoid using taxpayer money, although I certainly think it is the responsibility of the city to fund this, so I want the city to be funding it. Um, and in New York, I know they're looking at creating it as a research, a research project, which is a different way of doing it. It's, it's really interesting to me the ways that, that cities and community groups uh, and advocates are being creative about trying to find their ways around different problems as they pop up. One thing that I want to address is that this idea is so controversial in the United States, but it's really not in a lot of other parts of the world. I mean, you have Canada, they have a couple dozen supervised consumption sites, uh, some that have been existing for as long as 15 years. They're in Australia, all over Europe. I mean, it's, it's not an uncommon idea. I believe there's more than, more than 100 out there. I, Our the latest count was 120, around 120. It's a little hard because they keep opening and also because Canada has sort of two different types, the, the supervised consumption services and then the even lower threshold overdose prevention uh, sites. And those are sort of like like the user ran satellite sort of sites, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, just a tent in an alleyway uh, mm -hmm. sort of thing. Most of the experts in public health and law that I've spoken to about this subject believe that we're heading towards a test case, not unlike a Roe v. Wade, say. Um, I mean, do you think that that we'll find the right plaintiff in, in the right city that's willing to be the, you know, the the face of this issue and, and potentially do years in jail as this goes goes through the courts? You know, I hope we don't have to go for that kind of a defensive litigation strategy, but I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, 
one of the things that I say here in California a lot is that, you know, if, if Assembly Bill 186, the California Supervised Consumption Services Overdose Prevention Bill passes and the governor signs it, it has passed, if the governor signs it, it'll essentially put this on the same footing as where we are with marijuana. So right now, San Francisco licenses on-site consumption of a federally Schedule One controlled substance in a handful of locations around the city. And those are the marijuana dispensaries that have on-site consumption licenses. And this is in many ways no different uh, than what's happening there. And, you know, marijuana is treated under federal law the same as all these other substances, which is absurd, but that's a different, <laughs> different conversation altogether. You know, the feds have certainly tried to come after different states around medical cannabis, around cannabis, um, but they've never, they've never gone after an elected official or a city official uh, or a state official for any of these. So, you know, it, it's while the, the stigma that relates to injection drug use is much greater than that that attaches to people who use cannabis, um, you know, I would be surprised if they actually came after a city official. Um, I think that sets up a, a bigger conflict than even this administration wants. I think they mostly like just doing some sword rattling, um, saber rattling. Uh, so, you know, we'll see. I wouldn't be at all surprised if there are at least a series of arrests for this. And, you know, I, I cut my my activist teeth on civil disobedience with ACT UP back in the day. So, you know, if we have to do that again, we certainly can. I hope we don't. One of my concerns is that um, this, this op-ed from Rosenstein is going to scare away uh, injection drug users. If a supervised consumption site were to open, I mean, they're getting this message, like, I don't, I don't know if they'd feel comfortable even using it. I mean, would they would the would the DOJ be just sitting there with handcuffs waiting for them to cut the ribbon? Uh, it's it seems like it's taken a long time as well. The, the, there's been a lot of um, tepidness from people that are the, 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 will they or won't they? Who's going to open it first? Kind of thing. Um, in in Travis Lupic's book, Fighting for Space, there was like just such a a really good layout of the Vancouver sort of history and fighting for fighting for insight ultimately. And the, the people who did that, who really got it, they were so nervous that when they opened it, people weren't gonna show up. Like, like the Vancouver, like Vandu, the, the drug user network there, if they didn't support insight and these people were organizing drug users, if they weren't saying like, no, insight's safe, like you're gonna be good, you're not gonna get arrested. Like if they weren't doing all this sort of community building and stakeholding behind the scenes like it wouldn't have worked and that's the thing about a lot of these things is that like naloxone distribution doesn't work unless you get it into the hands of, of drug users and and things like this don't work unless unless the people who the services are for are bought in right and I think that's so much of what this work really is about and I think that's the stuff that you know Laura, you've been doing for decades. You know, the, the people, people who use drugs are actually at less, they're at the same level of legal vulnerability as they are when they're out on the sidewalk. I mean, they could be coming to the attention of the feds and facing federal charges, 
that they wouldn't otherwise be. But, um, you know, they sort of face less risk in this than the people who are, who own the property and are running the program, which doesn't mean, I mean, it's, you know, it defeats the entire purpose of providing people who use drugs with a safe space if it's not at all safe um, from, um, from them being arrested. So that, you know, it's not worth doing if it's putting people who use drugs at greater risk of harm because that's what we're trying to avoid. Yeah, and I think it's important to keep in mind that we're talking about a, a specific subset of drug users that, that are usually homeless or, or, or have housing instability that they're on the street a lot. Um, there are many users that drive in and drive out and they're not going to be using, a, they're not going to be pulling their car into the, the parking lot of the supervised injection facility and waiting to get trailed, you know, back to the highway. Um, but we can, we can attack the, you know, where, where the crisis is really happening um, uh, here. Uh, and, you know, and, and, uh, and I think that that's important to make that distinction is we're dealing with the most marginalized of, of a population that includes um, many other uh, different strata of people that use drugs. Um, Laura, has, the converse, has this um, pronouncement from the DOJ, uh, how has it been met by your colleagues and your peers? Um, has, it, has it changed the conversation, um, emboldened it? Yeah, there was nothing new in there that we hadn't heard before. You know, various U.S. attorney generals have, uh, in different states, have... It was a weak-ass argument. <laughs> ...on this. The DOJ has no business weighing in on the best way to address a public health crisis. This is a public health crisis. It deserves public health interventions. The criminal justice system has no business saying what we should or shouldn't be doing around this to begin with. So there's that problem. I mean, he's woefully misinformed about what the programs are and his specific op-ed was full of factual inaccuracies um, and quotes from, you know, random people in Washington state as if they had some like stance in this. Um, but it wasn't at all surprising the fact that the New York Times, which has previously done their own editorials in support of supervised consumption services, was willing to publish this as a little bit. But it, you know, there was nothing surprising about this. It definitely got people's attention. And in some ways, I think it's raised the level of conversation around this. Like people are more interested in finding out what these programs are because of it. And I think, you know, it may well backfire on this administration for trying to uh, you know, add this to the list of things that they're making various fact-free assertions about and then proven wrong. I think, I think Rod Rosenstein wrote this to, to, to remind everyone that he's a good Republican and, hey, don't fire me. Like, I believe in the same things as you guys and, and this is him coming out and because he's, he's part of the quote witch hunt and there's so much other like bullshit politics going on at the DOJ and like, the like Trump's like nativist disgusting faction of, of of politics is sort of like at war with the DOJ or something, and there's all this it's all this weird sort of like like the Russia investigation, like all this stuff is is I feel like weirdly in the backdrop of this because people only know the Deputy Attorney General, people only know Rod Rosenstein 
because of the, the Mueller investigation, because Sessions recused himself from, from the Russian probe. Like there's so much stupid shit going on right now. And I feel like this is Rod Rosenstein just being like, I'm a good conservative. Don't fire me. And, and when it comes to Donald Trump, I think he uh, secretly would very much like drugs to be legal and, and to be in the business. Um, uh, you know, that, that, that's uh, I, ideologically, I, I think he probably stands inside his own head wh- where he did in 1993. Um, but he but he can't he simply can't say that now. Um, but uh, I, I, I can't say for sure. He's an opportunist. He's not an ideologue. Yeah, he has the understanding of like a fifth grader about this. But you're right. In the 90s, he was like, the war on drugs has failed. We got to legalize it. He did say that. So, Laura, I, I suppose we've kept you a while. Is, is there anything that you'd like to, you know, close out with that, that can that maybe, you know, we've missed or, or that's missing from the conversation that, that uh, our listeners need to hear? I mean, I think, you know, the regardless of what this administration does, cities and states are going to move forward. We've lost so many people to overdose deaths and it's meant that a lot of, you know, grieving family members and concerned public health officials and so on are starting to actually reach for other solutions beyond what we've been doing. And, you know, it doesn't take much looking for other solutions to find supervised injection services because they are so evidence-based and heavily researched and common sense in other countries. And I think, uh, you know, I really hope we don't have to lose another 72,000 people to overdose before we start actually providing solutions that work, like stronger naloxone distribution um, and, you know, greater access to methadone and buprenorphine, uh, but also to supervised injection services. So, you know, every every day that we delay opening these programs, more people are dying and we can't wait much longer. Thanks for listening to Narcotica. You can follow us on Twitter at Narcocast or on Narcocast.com. If you like the program and you want to support us, there are two ways. First, Give us a decent rating on iTunes so others can find the podcast. You can also find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and soon Spotify and other platforms. Second, you can sign up at patreon.com slash narcotica and become one of our patrons. A little goes a long way, so we really appreciate the Patreon listeners we have. Plus, if you donate $5 or more, you'll get access to exclusive bonus content. If you want to send us suggestions, tell us about that one time you took way too much acid, man, or just drop us a line, you can email us at tips at narcocast.com Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Morath, Zachary Siegel and myself, Troy Farah Our co-producer is John Ahrens and the opening credits music is by Glassboy That's all folks Talk to you again soon